Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. To make a donation, please use the link to the left of this webpage. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. Women who conceive between April and July may run more risk of having babies with birth defects. That time period coincides quite well with the time period when surface waters measured across the U.S. are having significantly more pesticides in their concentration than any other time of year. New research on pesticides and reproduction. And a century after Robert Peary reached the North Pole, we're still learning about the forgotten Arctic explorers. One general said, well, he wasn't sure Peary made it to the North Pole because all he had for proof was an ignorant Negro and some ignorant uh, Inuit people. They were called non-credible witnesses. Racism and the race to the top of the world. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young in Washington. When crops go in the ground and start to grow, it's time for conventional farmers to apply chemical weed killers. For example, millions of pounds of atrazine are applied on U.S. farms each year even though the herbicide is banned in Europe. And it should not be surprising that between April and July, there tend to be higher levels of pesticides in water than during the rest of the year, as the U.S. Geological Survey has found. What is surprising is new research that shows an association between the time of conception, pesticide levels, and the likelihood of crippling or fatal birth defects. The research is being led by Paul Winchester, a neonatologist. His curiosity was aroused when he encountered a lot of birth defects when he began working in the heart of farm country at St. Francis Hospital in Indianapolis. Uh, Dr. Winchester, what exactly did you find? Well, we found that birth defects like spina bifida, cleft palate and lip, Down syndrome, urogenital abnormalities, club fit, among others, are some of the birth defects that are more likely to occur for women who conceive between April and July that time period coincides quite well with the time period when surface waters measured across the U.S. are having significantly more pesticides in their concentration than any other time of year. As a neonatologist, you must be seeing some of these children who have quite uh, extensive urogenital defects. Uh, How true is that of your practice? Well, the urogenital problems that are the most common are those that affect male genitals. Hypospadias is a, is a good example, and undescended testicles. Both of these are now known to be linked to exposures of chemicals in utero, not just pesticides, but some of the other chemicals as well. Almost all of these chemicals can act in a way that is similar to estrogen, either by blocking testosterone or, or by augmenting estrogen signals. And, of course, that's anathema to the normal development of a male genital. And how much of that are you seeing? Well, we do see a lot of it. We uh, Probably the most striking thing that's happened to us this last month, which is the, the month when babies conceived in June are delivering, is it seems that we have seen kind of one of everything. We've seen a, in, in a small hospital, community hospital setting, we've seen major birth defects that range from chromosome anomalies, spina bifida, adactyly, cleft palate and lip. We're just struck by the fact that 
this research appears to be right on this month. How much did this research cost you, and, and how did you pay for it? Well, we're a non-funded research program. Um, I, I kind of grew up on a farm in Montana where when you see the fence is broke, you just grab a, a fence post and a pair of pliers and go and fix it. <laughs> and you hope that if you're over there, the neighbors will notice and give you a hand. And pretty much that's how this research has been done. And I, I, I sometimes wonder if I had been funded whether this question would have been asked. Which question is that? That is... Um, the number one cause of infant death turns out to have a higher risk of, of occurrence in women who conceive between April and July. I kind of wonder why that's news. And so, in a sense, we like to ask this large question because we now know some things in rats and, and amphibians and, and alligators that these pesticides are, in fact, changing them because of fetal exposure. And we don't have enough time to sort this out before perhaps we could have harmed generations of children. Now, you say we need to look at the downstream effects of pesticide exposure. What do you mean exactly by that? Probably one of the most important investigators in this area is a man named Michael Skinner, who has shown us that the capacity that pesticides have to alter our lives has been grossly underestimated. In his model, the pregnant rat is exposed for just a brief period in the very first phase of pregnancy, to one pesticide. And keep in mind that there are no children in America who are exposed to just one pesticide. The average child is exposed to 300 chemicals at the time of conception. But in his model, with just one pesticide, all the rat babies, when they were born, did not have any birth defects at all. They looked perfectly normal. That's really important to think about because had the experiment ended there, it would have been declared a safe exposure, not associated with any harm. As he likes to point out, thanks to some inquiring minds, he was allowed to keep his experiment going long enough to see how these rats turned out as adults. And there he found that 90% of the males were afflicted by a whole host of disorders that we would refer to as adult disorders, adult diseases. They included conditions like low sperm count and infertility, immune disorders, kidney and prostate problems, cancer, high cholesterol, and a shortened lifespan. And if that sounds bad, it's really not as bad as the rest of the experiment because the rest of the experiment showed that this condition could be transferred to all subsequent generations without any further exposure. So if one pesticide could do this, imagine what might be happening in our society. What do you tell your patients, people who are thinking about having children? What about conceiving during the beginning of the growing season, this April to, to July period that seems to increase the risk of birth defects? Well, based on our, our current evidence, we, we certainly can't prove to you that it would be safer for you to, to avoid those time periods. But based on the current level of knowledge, uh, if you have a choice, why not uh, try conceiving in some other time? We, we happen to notice that the time associated with the lowest birth defect rate is also the time when women are most likely to have a successful pregnancy, and that turns out to be December in the U.S., so the spring tends to be a high-risk period for a lot of different complications of pregnancy, and uh, this may be more relevant to some than others. Dr. Paul Winchester is a neonatologist at St. Francis Hospital in Indianapolis. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Here 
Here in Washington, the Obama administration has just made a major decision on global warming. The Environmental Protection Agency will use the Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gases. It's the first time the federal government has set limits on carbon dioxide emissions. The decision means EPA will begin a rulemaking process that could lead to curbs on the CO2 coming from some sources like vehicles and power plants. EPA's decision satisfies the requirements of a major Supreme Court ruling on greenhouse gases, and it will put pressure on Congress to enact a broader system to address climate change. And here in Massachusetts, Obama's top energy and science advisors came to visit one of the country's leading science institutions, MIT, in Cambridge. It's part of a bid to get America rolling on developing innovative technologies as well as policies to combat climate disruption. With $150 billion to spend on scientific discovery and technological innovation over the next decade, the race is already on to turn this federal funding into employment and equipment. Carol Browner, assistant to the president for energy and climate change, gave the keynote address in an auditorium overflowing with engineers, researchers, and business developers. The president likes to say the first country to make renewable energy the profitable kind of energy will lead the 21st century. But if America wants to lead this century, Carol Browner says, we're first going to have to pull ourselves out of the last one. In the late 19th century, when Thomas Edison opened the Pearl Street Power Plant in Manhattan, he pioneered an electricity delivery system that gave American industry what they needed to lead the world. Sadly, if Edison were alive today, he'd be all too familiar with the current system we rely on. Not that much has changed. I think we would all agree that we can do better than we did in 1882. In fact, many other nations are already doing better. Europe and Asia have taken the lead in solar energy. In Germany, wind power now supplies 3% of its total electricity production. Spain, wind accounts for 11%. And in Denmark, 19%. Here, less than 1%, placing us just ahead of China and behind India. For John Holdren, assistant to the president for science and technology, the event was something of a homecoming. The presidential science advisor began his training at MIT as a rocket scientist back in the early 60s after he was inspired by President Kennedy's call to go to the moon. John Holdren compared that effort to the present task of changing our energy systems sufficiently and quickly enough to avert looming climate disaster. The energy challenge we face is actually a more difficult challenge than putting a man on the moon was. And it's more difficult in a variety of respects. We have to do things that pervade our whole economy, not just in this country but around the world, in order to get it done to the degree that is required. So it will take more than an Apollo program, more than a Manhattan project that produced the first nuclear weapons to get this done. But we certainly have in this institution, in this country, and around the world the talent that we need. To get emissions down to a level where he says there would be at least a 50-50 chance of avoiding climate catastrophe, John Holdren said the worldwide goal is to stop emitting the equivalent of 9 billion tons of CO2 a year. How to get there? He cited several options, each good for about one gigaton, that is, a billion tons. We would have to cut energy use in all the world's buildings 20 to 25 percent below business as usual. Two billion cars would need to get 60 miles a gallon rather than 30 to get one gigaton of carbon per year. 700 nuclear power plants would need to replace coal-burning power plants to get one gigaton. 
A million two-megawatt wind turbines would need to replace coal-burning power plants to get one gigaton of carbon per year. The 2005 rate of tropical deforestation would have to be cut in half, approximately, to get a gigaton. And there's more math to consider. The costs of these changes that rely on present technology will range well into the trillions of dollars. And new technology will have to be invented if we are to better those 50-50 odds that the nation's chief scientist says we have of averting climate disaster. He says we only have three choices. Mitigation, meaning the things we can do to reduce the pace and magnitude of the changes in global climate that we are causing. Adaptation, meaning measures that we take to reduce the adverse impacts on human well-being that result from the changes in climate that do occur. And the third option, we have to be frank about it, is suffering, the adverse impacts that we fail to avoid by either mitigation or adaptation. Presidential Science Advisor John Holdren speaking at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Just ahead, three years ago, the town of Auburn, New York, was inundated with 30,000 crows. But with perseverance, the town sent the birds on the wing. I mean, we were getting calls all the time. What are we going to do about this? I can't get down my sidewalk. My car's covered with it. You're going to pay for washing it. And it was like a constant barrage of calls. Now uh, that's a handful a year, and that's because you might have 100 crows in one tree near a residential area or whatever. Find out how they did it. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. The recession has meant a lot of things for a lot of people. Lost jobs, lost investments, lost houses, lost sleep. And for author David Corton, our current economic mess may also generate public support for fundamental changes in our financial system. His new book is called Agenda for a New Economy, From Phantom Wealth to Real Wealth, Why Wall Street Can't Be Fixed and How to Replace It. David Corton, uh, what's the difference between what you call real and phantom wealth? Phantom wealth is basically money that is created out of nothing. And Wall Street has become a master at phantom wealth creation. For example? Well, pumping up financial bubbles. Of course, uh, the whole mortgage debacle was based on the assumption that uh, housing prices would rise forever. And, of course, housing prices were rising even though there was no change in the size of a home and its uh, state of repair, its livability, its location or anything else. Uh, It was pure inflation, but we treated that as though inflating housing prices was actually creating real wealth. And what is real wealth? Well, real wealth is is anything of real value or utility. It would be land, labor, um, education, ideas. And at the most basic level, it's healthy children. It's, uh, uh, it's a strong family. It's a healthy natural environment. The most valuable of, uh, of real wealth is, is living wealth. But, of course, that does not come in in any way in the statistics by which we normally evaluate economic performance. Now, in your book, you argue that the fundamental flaw of our economic system is the way money is created. Um, what's wrong with the way we create money, in your view? Yes, in our current system, the creation of money is controlled by private banks. And it's created when a bank issues a loan. It records the loan as a liability and makes another uh, entry as an asset, uh, which represents the, uh, the money you need to repay. And with those simple entries, new money is created. Now, the catch is that the bank creates only the amount of the principal, but you have to repay the principal plus interest, which means that 
in the aggregate, if the economy is not growing fast enough to generate enough demand for new loans to create the money to repay the interest, then the whole system goes into default, which is very much what, uh, what has happened. So wait a second. You're saying that our banking system is essentially a Ponzi scheme? Uh, it is very much a Ponzi scheme, and, and it's a very sophisticated Ponzi scheme, but uh, it, it puts the whole society into a condition of, uh, of dependence and debt slavery such that we all end up working for the uh, working for the banks in the end. Now, the, the folks who talk about uh, a free market often cite Adam Smith. In your book, uh, you also turn to Adam Smith. Seems that uh, you and the folks that you don't agree with are, are citing the same guru. We are, and it's interesting how you know many of our of our historic thought leaders uh, have been distorted. Now, if one really understands Adam Smith, he was actually praising a market that looks very much like a, a local farmer's market, a place where small producers and, uh, and, and consumers come together in the context of a community and community values to exchange goods and services. Now, what, what his writing has been used to, to justify is the, the consolidation and monopolization of economic power. And in fact, those who, uh, who study Adam Smith's work in, in depth conclude that he actually wrote Wealth of Nations as, as almost a tirade against the concentration and, and abuse of, of corporate power with the support of the state. How does the climate change crisis play into your, your thesis here? What we need to face up to is that as a species, we are exceedingly over-consuming beyond what the planet can sustain. Now, we're often told that, that any change in our consumption level will require sacrifice. There are enormous opportunities to at once reduce our consumption and increase our quality of life. But it requires a, an enormous reallocation of resources from those uses that are harmful, like warfare is an obvious example, or the creation of an auto-dependent society, to a focus on meeting real needs and meeting the real needs of all people. Now, this requires almost literally standing our economy on its head to focus on life needs rather than on increasing the financial assets of the already very wealthy. Please describe for me, David Corton, the way a healthy economy from your perspective would operate, one that would, in fact, protect the environment and support our society. In other words, what should we replace Wall Street with? We need to redesign around a primary value on life, on the health of our children, the health of our families, the health of our communities, and the health of our natural environment. But it requires local economic control. It requires local ownership. It requires the broadest possible participation in, uh, in ownership. And it means, it, it means managing the economy for the, for the long term, the long term health of our, of our living systems. Now, that means, curiously, that uh, in many ways what we need to move, move to is a financial system that looks more like the one we had when I was growing up in the post-World War II years, when our, our banking system is what we called a unitary system comprised of, of individual locally owned banks that uh, existed to be depositories for people's savings and to make loans to local people to buy their homes and to uh, operate their, their local businesses. David Corden is president and founder of the People-Centered Development Forum and author of Agenda for a New Economy, From Phantom Wealth to Real Wealth, Why Wall Street Can't Be Fixed and How to Replace It.
In honor of Earth Day, we've been digging into the Living on Earth archives for some favorite stories and catching up on new developments. Today, we revisit a rather ominous report we aired in 2006, one that could have come from a Hitchcock classic. They're so thick, it's almost like out of the movies, the birds. For citizens of Auburn, New York, the invasion of crows is not Hollywood fiction. Each winter, it's been daily reality. There's a gigantic black explosion. The noise, the beauty of the whole thing, it was beautiful. If that was on television, I would watch it. I'd, I'd love that. When producer Cy Montgomery visited Auburn to report on a city inundated with crows, she found residents divided over whether the birds were a blessing or a curse. Auburn is a small city, a city of fine old churches and pretty little parks, located about 25 miles southwest of Syracuse as the crow flies. And each winter, a lot of crows do fly to this community of 28,000 people, tens of thousands of them. The spectacle begins around dusk, a river of black wings, the air alive with noisy, hurrying birds flowing down from the sky. No one knows exactly why crows mass in the winter. Ornithologists think they do it to share information or ward off predators with sheer numbers. Whatever the reason, crows have been roosting in Auburn for at least 100 years. They used to keep to the outskirts, but lately they've been coming downtown. Maybe it's the fine dining. They know our trash routes better than our sanitation department. That's Auburn's mayor, Tim Lattimore. When he took office, downtown Auburn's crow roost was the biggest in the state. Last winter, biologists counted 63,000 of them. In Auburn, in winter, crows are the talk of the town. Some folks welcome them. Others are intimidated by so many blackbirds. But on one point, most agree. Tens of thousands of crows can leave your city in, well, deep doo-doo. I mean, there were some businesses that we have here in town, such as the bank. The girls would have to leave and wear their umbrellas. Our local YMCA, uh, when people came out at night, they would normally get hit two or three times. Though experts assure the birds pose no threat of transmitting, say, bird flu, the crows do present the mayor with a big public relations problem. I'm trying to attract Fortune 500 companies, and with the droppings that the birds were giving, I mean... Uh, the fecal matter was, you know, the people would walk in City Hall with fecal matter on their feet. It's just not cleanly. It just doesn't give the right presentation that we want to uh, give off here in the city of Auburn. So he called in the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Wildlife Services Program. Biologist Rich Chipman is the New York State Director. Hey, Adam. Yeah, do you find, did you find some... Yeah, yeah... Big time. For a week, Chipman and eight federal scientists team up with eight city employees, including Dave Spider Ganey, who's been working Auburn streets for 35 years. Here, let me let me give you the spider. Van Anden Street. Hello? Van Anden Street? All right, give us about two minutes. We're about two minutes away from there. Wearing blaze orange vests and driving trucks boldly labeled USDA Wildlife Services, these men are on a mission to drive as many crows out of town as they can. We want to get down to State Street. Stay right in this lane. Tonight, we head for one of the bird's favorite spots, a neighborhood of tall pines and oaks not far from a ball field. 
prime time or at about 6 o'clock where we'd certainly expect to see pros trying to roost here for the night. The team's arsenal is completely non-lethal, but effective. A tape recording of a crow distress call broadcasts the news that this is no place to spend the night. Shining a bright red laser into the trees makes the crows nervous. Pretty soon, the flock gets the message. As thousands of crows flee the trees, their wing beats sound like a rainstorm. And their deep black forms against the gray sky look like night itself taking flight. Each night, teams try to hit all the crow hotspots, like a little park on the west side of town. Here along the back of the bench, you can see whitewash. Uh, this is all crow dropping in here. It's really impacted people's ability to enjoy the area. See, I work for the city, so I see it all the time. The parking meters were so bad they couldn't put money into them. They would, they'd be dripping with this. But in the grove of trees where the birds typically roost, we find none tonight. This is the fifth night of the program, and these extremely intelligent birds are learning fast. If they don't leave, things will only get worse. You have your artillery rounds, Rich? I do. Well, I got some caps left. Okay. You needed them. For stubborn crows, Chipman and Spider break out the heavy stuff. Screaming rockets shot off from a cap gun zigzag into the night air. He's going to put the laser in there and we're going to do the pyrotechnic again. Near the maximum security prison, usually a favored spot, one lone crow eyes the USDA truck suspiciously from the top of a tall tree. Quite often before they, they roost, they'll send in a sentinel or a scout to make sure things are okay. And you can see this guy that just came in here, and he's looking around, and uh, he's obviously a little nervous. See how he's, he's sort of bobbing back and forth. He may go back and send the message that this isn't a, a place to go for tonight. They, they actually communicate back and forth quite a bit. Words apparently spreading in Crotum. So far, 90% of the 36,000 crows that showed up this year are gone. After seven days and 14,000 city dollars, downtown Auburn is no longer Crow City. Reporter Cy Montgomery telling us about the crows of Auburn, New York, from that story in 2006. And with us on the phone now to give us the update is the city of Auburn's uh, superintendent of public works, Jerry Del Favaro. Hi, Mr. Del Favaro. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Yep. Uh, when uh, Cy Montgomery told us about this just three years ago, you had more than 30,000 crows. How many this year? We're down to thousands. I mean, it's it's a manageable uh, uh, flock. I mean, you wouldn't even know it's a problem in Auburn anymore. And remind us that you're doing what? This isn't scarecrows and tying a, a pie tin in the top of a tree. It's a little more sophisticated than that. It is a system. It, believe it or not, there is a, a science to this program. Uh, it's a seven-day program. We start at the end of October, and it's uh, we do from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m., and then we start in the morning from 4 a.m. to 8 a.m. So it's twice a day, seven days a week, and we're using the um, 
lasers. We're using the pyrotechnics, and we're using uh, squawk boxes, distress calls, and uh, regular uh, lighting also. And we have a system. We have a group of six to eight guys. They're in three or four different trucks. They're in radio communication. They actually, it's almost like herding cattle. They they know how to move these crows and know where to move them, so they're, uh, they move right outside the city. And within seven days, it's, it's unbelievable the difference. It sounds like this costs a lot of money, though. Uh, actually, when we uh, were going to contract with the USDA, it, it was a pretty big amount, but it was it was worth it even at that. But now with us doing it, we purchased our own equipment. We probably got around $2,500 worth of equipment purchased. And with our labor, it's uh, the guys have got to be here anyways. We're using them for the eight-hour day and six to eight guys out of 70 employees that we have at the Public Works. So it really isn't that costly for us. At this time, you know, with, with us doing it ourselves, it's working very well. And I guess uh, you're, you're, you've got to be saving some money in terms of the uh, you don't have as much crow uh, excrement to deal with. Well, I can tell you right now that in the last few years, we've had a handful of crow complaints. I mean, 10, 12 years ago, 8 years ago, 7 years ago, I mean, it was constant daily. It was, I mean, we were getting calls all the time. What are we going to do about this? I can't get down my sidewalk. My car's covered with it. You're going to pay for washing it. And it was like a constant barrage of calls. Now uh, that's a handful a year, and that's because you might have 100 crows in one tree near a residential area or whatever. You know who I bet is not happy about your success here? The people who own the car wash. Well, you know what? We still got salt and snow and, and dirt. So, you, you know, I mean, you still got to wash your car. You know, unfortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, you don't have those big white globs all over everything. So I'm glad it's happening and, and no crows are being hurt. Unfortunately, I get calls from other surrounding towns and cities wanting to know why I sent the birds over to them or whatever. And where do they go? Uh, you know, on the outskirts, there's a lot of rural areas outside of Auburn, and hopefully that's where they're going. I really can't pinpoint, you know, we don't take the birds or whatever, but, you know, it is working, and if they're going back out to the country into the cornfields, that's great. You know, this might seem like a strange question for someone who's devoted so much time to chasing these birds away, but I'm wondering, do you miss them a little bit? Because oh, it was sure, kind of sure. a phenomenon. I, well, let me tell you, and, you know, I've been with the city for over 30 years. I mean, just going down, we have an arterial that goes through the town. Just going down, if we were down visiting them all with my family or whatever, the first thing you would do at 6 at six o'clock during the winter months is look up to the sky and be amazed at how many crows were there. It, it's a, it was quite a sight to see. I mean, if you've never seen it, you would be shocked. You would, If you were driving through town, you'd probably pull over just to watch that event. It was quite an amazing amazing sight to see such a, such a flock coming in and going out of Auburn. Jerry Del Favaro is superintendent of the Public Works Department for the city of Auburn in New York, talking to us about dealing with far too many crows. Thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Yep. Bye. There's a crow flying, black and ragged, tree to tree. He's black as the highway that's leading me. Just ahead, notes to celebrate Earth Day and its 39th birthday. Stay with us on Living on Earth.
Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Coming up, the rest of the story behind the 1909 North Pole expedition. But first, this note on emerging science from Lindsay Breslau. Haunting and beautiful, a wolf's cry pierces the darkness of a Montana night. The wolf believes it's answering a call from a fellow Canis lupus, but it's been hoodwinked. The call of the wild it replies to is a recording played by a small box on a nearby tree. The howl box runs on solar power and plays a recorded howl twice a day at dawn and dusk. As soon as it emits a cry, the box switches into record mode to capture any responses. It then goes into sleep mode until the next programmed recording. The gray wolf of the northern Rocky Mountains was removed from the endangered species list in March, and it is now up to the states to keep tabs on the wolves, as well as fund the project. The howl box is cheaper and less invasive than traditional tracking methods like radio collars and aerial monitoring. It's one of several new inventions by the University of Montana, the Nez Perce Tribe, and other organizations to reduce the cost of tracking. University researchers will continue to test the howl box this summer on a large wolf population in Idaho. They hope the call-and-response device will be a howling success and make tracking easier, especially in isolated areas. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Lindsay Breslau. One hundred years ago, explorer Robert Peary sent a telegram from the Arctic Circle that read, Stars and Stripes Nailed to the North Pole. That's how the world learned of Peary's now famous achievement, first to reach the North Pole in April 1909. But turns out Peary's version of the story is, well, just the tip of the iceberg. Harvard professor and explorer Dr. Alan Counter has devoted decades to filling in the missing chapters. And what Counter's uncovered is a far more complex picture. For starters, Counter says Peary's success largely depended on an African-American man named Matthew Henson, a crucial member of the polar expedition. Reaching the North Pole at that time was tantamount to reaching the moon in our lifetimes. Uh, No one knew what to expect at the top of the earth, but Peary was a determined man, and he wanted to be the first human being to stand at the top of the earth. Uh, You know, later these things came out. But Henson was a man, an African-American, who at that time was essentially disenfranchised like most African-Americans. And when Perry tried to give an explanation of why he hired Henson, he often said that this was a very intelligent Negro man. He was of greater intelligence than most I'd met, etc. And I found in him uh, the abilities that enabled him to assist me to get to the pole. Now, Henson, with equal pride, said, on the other hand, I met this man, Perry, a white man, uh, Uh, who had the traits and characteristics that made me uh, desire to give him my services. So there was pride on both sides. Did Henson get proper credit 
or recognition for, for his contributions? Well, you ask an interesting and almost, I'm sure, rhetorical question. Is obviously none of the people of color, the Inuit people who helped to get both of them there, nor Henson, received any credit. And in fact, uh, one general, a General Greeley, said, well, he wasn't sure Perry made it to the North Pole because all he had for proof was an ignorant Negro and some ignorant uh, Inuit people. And they couldn't be trusted, right? Exactly. They were not, they were called non-credible witnesses. Uh, At the same time, there was a congressman, I don't recall his name right away, who wanted to recommend medals for the other men, but he stopped short of doing that because he was afraid he would have to recommend Henson for a medal. And he, quote, did not want to introduce the name of a Negro on the House floor. I wonder how he would feel now to see that not only the House floor, but the White House (laughs) has a person of color. So these are the kinds of things that are documented that they faced. Also, the National Geographic gave all sorts of credits and awards and accolades to Perry and totally ignored Henson. Wow. It's just amazing the uh, way that race colored, pardon the pun, the, the whole enterprise. Yes. Yes. It played a role in every step along the way. And uh, according to the Inuit people, uh, Henson fell asleep uh, on the last part of the dash, and Perry tried to wake them up and get them to go ahead without Henson. <laughs> and they wouldn't do it because they were close to Henson. Henson spoke the language like a native, and he persuaded them to go and help them. And so when they made the final dash, Henson took off and was ahead of Perry. And apparently there was an argument in the 1910 Boston Herald. There's an interview with Henson where he said, Mr. Perry didn't speak to me all the way back (laughs) to the ship. When Perry finally arrived, he said, I thought I told you to halt. I gave you an order to halt short of the pole. And Henson said, well, I just dashed forward and uh, everything beyond us now is south. So we're both here, something to that effect. But I'll bet you. Henson probably said to him, now, when you get back to America, you'll be the all-powerful white leader, and you'll get all the credit. But I want you to know that on this day, a colored man from Washington, D.C., was the first human being to stand at the pole with these four Inuit men. One of the missing chapters, if you will, here has to do with Henson. Uh, but there's there's another, and that has to do with the fact that they they left behind more than just a flag while they were up there, didn't they? <laughs> well, that's one way to look at it. Uh, some periods of time during their exploration, they were isolated in Greenland and northern Canada for up to four years at a time. And uh, they took on virtual Inuit wives. I mean, in Perry's case, he was married, but he had an Inuit wife uh, there as well. And... Uh, it turns out that Perry fathered two children with her. And uh, Matthew Henson, who was not married at the time, Perry's assistant, had a wife in Alakasina, and uh, she bore him a child, and that child's name was Anauka. I was exploring the area in 1986, I believe, when I was invited to a village called Morisak. And when I got to this village, which is north of our airbase in Thule there, I was introduced to Anauka by the indigenous people. And he rubbed my face and thought I was a relative and said to me something to the effect that, Maripaluk, you've come to find me. And what he was saying is that you're a relative of Matthew the Kind One and you've come to find me. And I had to tell him that unfortunately I was not a relative, but I wondered, like, who are you? And that's when he told me uh, that he was the son of Matthew Henson. And he said, I want you to meet my cousin. And my response was, there are more of you? And he said, yes. And he took me north and sort of guided me. And I traveled about 100 kilometers north and found a man who ran out to me to look at my face. And he, too, said, essentially in Inuit, 
welcome uh, Maripaluk, and uh, it was the son of Admiral Peary. Well, you clearly became very close to these folks, and you made a pretty big promise uh, for a special event to mark this, this anniversary this year. Tell me about that. Well, you know, when you make promises, you have to be careful. It's something I've learned with my children. <laughs> when you say you're going to do something, people expect you to do it. And we started talking with the older sons, whom I really came to adore. And they were talking about the North Pole and how they would like to go and so forth. But they said, you know, we're old and we're going to die soon. And we know that. They were both 80 at the time. And they said, uh, maybe our children will go. And I said, I'll give you my word that when the anniversary of the North Pole discovery comes around in 2009, I'm going to go there and take children from both sides of the family, the Inuit Peary family and Inuit Henson family. Go there, you mean to the North Pole? To the North Pole. I'm going to go there. <laughs> I mean, I had no idea how to do this. So, you know, you make these promises, and that's 20 years ahead, you know. And all of a sudden, the time comes around, and people are saying, basically, what are you going to do? And so I made every effort. I contacted the Air Force, and we discussed the prospect. They were very helpful. It was decided that we would take a flight on a C-130, but unfortunately, just as I was so enthusiastic about this, it notified the family. We had asked them to select the different family members who would go with us. We were going to lay a wreath. We are going to take a time capsule and take a commemorative capsule there and bring it back for young people to learn more about the Arctic. Just as we decided to do that, we got the bad news that, well, we've looked at this, and it's unlikely we can do this exercise because the ice pack or the ice is so weak we could not tolerate uh, uh, landing there. And I had heard, too, that there had been difficulty with other planes. In fact, I don't have concrete evidence, but I've been told that two instances where planes sank a- a- after landing there. So we couldn't put anybody's lives at risk. So there I was without a flight. I was able to get the U.S. Navy submarine uh, with the help of Admiral Melvin uh, G. Williams, Jr. Uh, we were able to get the commemorative case containing memorabilia from Henson and Peary to the North Pole. And we're very proud of that. Dr. Counter, why have you done all this? Why does this mean so much to you? When you start an initiative like this, you cannot predict where it's going to go or what's going to happen. Who would have thought that you'd meet a man who just becomes a part of your life, an Afro-Inuit or an Afro-Eskimo who tells you what it means for him to just meet a family member? And it touched my heart very deeply. And they've become more like family now, not just friends or acquaintances. When they were here in 1987, one of the sons had a pregnant wife. And he said, I'm, I, you know, I'm looking forward to my child, and we don't know what to name him. My mother said to Vitus, uh, the grandson of Matthew Henson, she said, name him Alan. And just dropped it like that. So when I got back to Greenland, I must tell you, I was absolutely just pleasantly shocked to see a six foot five uh, Inuit young man, 20 years old, uh, just turning 21 now, named Alan. <laughs> Alan Henson. I mean, it just touched my heart deeply. So not only am I a member of the family, but there's a young man there named for me. And I was just so touched. And so, again, that's why I do it. It's a, it's a human thing. I had no motives other than that from the outset to now. This is uh, such an amazing story. And it's on top of what was already an amazing story. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it very much. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Alan Counter is a neurology professor at Harvard University and author of North Pole Legacy, Black, White, and Eskimo. Counter also helped Matthew Henson get some long overdue recognition. 
he requested that Henson's remains be moved to a place of honor. And Henson now lies in Arlington National Cemetery, just next to Robert Perry. Musicians have that uncanny knack of letting us feel good about feeling bad with those songs about love gone wrong. And today, to honor the 39th Earth Day, we turn to songs about how our relationship with the Earth is going wrong and how we might set it right, starting with the story of revolution from Sheryl Crow. Songs about the impact of environmental chaos date back to the first Earth Day in 1970 when a hit tune from Marvin Gaye linked the gutters of the ghetto to a globe going awry. On the oceans and upon our seas, fish full of mercury. Labor, civil rights, and eco activist Pete Seeger. Mr. Thompson starts his Cadillac, winds it down the freeway track, leaving friends and neighbors in a hydrocarbon haze. Joined by lots of smaller cars, all sending gases to the stars. They're to form a seething cloud that hangs for 30 days. And the sun licks down into it with an ultraviolet tongue. Turns it into smog, then it settles in our lungs. Oh, garbage, 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 garbage. We're filling up the sky with garbage. What will we do when there's nothing left to breathe but garbage? Garbage, written by Bill Steele shortly before that first Earth Day and sung here by Pete Seeger. Canadian songwriter and poet Joni Mitchell also wrote a hit back in 1970, and it was a hit once again for Counting Crows more than three decades later. They paid paradise and put up a fucking line With a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot Don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you got till it's gone It'd be a paradise and put up a fucking line They took all the trees and put them in a tree museum And 
While many musicians are environmental activists, few have started their own environmental philanthropies. Among them, Rainforest Foundation creator and former lead singer for the police, Sting. Seizing on solutions, Sting sings how one earth is enough if only we are willing to love. Love, he declares, is the seventh wave and a deeper wave than eco-destruction. Our musical tribute to Earth Day and its diverse rhythms is a reminder that each of our hearts beat in time with the turning of the days. We celebrate the Earth because we love our home and want to keep it livable for all of us and those who follow. And for this week, that is Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobeth, Helen Palmer, Ike Shriskandaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins and Marilyn Gavoni. Special thanks this week to Rachel Gottbaum, who produced our Crow Story from Auburn, New York. Our interns are Lindsay Breslau, Liz Gross, Phil DiMartino, and Christine Parrish. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. And happy Earth Day. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at gatesfoundation.org and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.